Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep, deep in Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activists and spoken word poet Max Parkes and Black Talk Media Project founder Scott Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the June 13th, 2018 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, the anniversary month of our program as we move into our seventh season. On and near this day in history, on June 13th, 1967, President Lyndon Johnson appointed U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Thurgood Marshall to fill the seat of retiring Supreme Court Associate Justice Tom C. Clark. On August 30th, after a heated debate, the Senate confirmed Marshall's nomination by a vote of 69 to 11. Two days later, he was sworn in by the just Chief Justice Earl Warren, making him the first African-American in history to sit on America's highest court. The great-grandson of slaves, Marshall was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1908. 
1933, after studying under the tutelage of civil liberties lawyer Charles H. Houston, he received his law degree from Howard University in Washington, D.C. In 1936, he joined the legal division of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, of which Houston was director, and two years later succeeded his mentor in the organization's top legal post. It should be noted, with shame and sadness, that Thurgood Marshall Jr., the son of late Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, served 15 years on the Core Civic, a.k.a. CCA Incorporated NYSECXW Board of Trustees, the largest prison, uh, private for-profit prison company in the entire world. On June 12th, Medgar Evers, civil rights activist, was assassinated. 1926 to 1963. In 1954, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brown versus Board of Education to end segregation in schools, Megger Evers was an insurance salesman and an activist with the Regional Council of Negro Leadership in Mississippi. He submitted an application to the University of Mississippi Law School, which was rejected. The NAACP named Evers its first state field secretary in Mississippi, where he played an inter inter integral role in the civil rights movement organizing investigations into crimes against blacks, such as the murder of Emmett Till, demonstrations including wade-ins at Biloxi's segregated beaches, and boycotts of companies that discriminated. Evers' family was often targeted by segregationists, and in 1963, a firebomb destroyed his house. Later that year, he was shot and killed in his own driveway. A sergeant in the U.S. Army during World War II Evers was buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 gained support from national outrage over Evers' murder. Byron de la Bac de Beckwith, a member of the Racist White Citizens Council, was tried twice for Evans' murder. Two all-white juries returned deadlock verdicts. De la Beckwith was tried a third time three decades later in 1994 and found guilty. In Direct Action News, we want to continue to remind you about the call for a Juneteenth 2018 mobilization against prison slavery from SPARC this year. Supporters of Operation Push are calling on all opponents of mass incarceration and modern-day slavery internationally to honor the Juneteenth holiday next week, Tuesday, June 19th, with community organizing and direct action. Another reminder a nationwide prison slave labor work strike is being called for on August 21st through September 9th. If you know someone inside, tell them what's going on. And finally, the Right to Vote campaign needs your support. It's a nationwide campaign being initiated by people currently confined in the United States. This campaign grew out of the August 21st national prison strike demand, specifically point number 10, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences pre-trial detainees and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. Tonight, our abolitionist in profile is Maria Stewart, 1803 to December 17, 1879, one of her era's most effective anti-slavery voices, breaking boundaries for women even as she advocated for an end to a brutal institution. She was an American domestic servant who became a teacher, journalist, lecturer, abolitionists, and women's rights activists. Our riders of the 21st Century Underground Railroad tonight are Anthony Jakes and Robert Boteau. They spent 45 years in prison combined, serving their full sentences before having their convictions vacated in April of 2018. We have no guests tonight, so we'll cover the information 
paint the pictures from the perspectives of slavery abolitionists and try to make sense of it all. As always, our list of stories and articles exceeds our allotted time. Be sure to follow the information we provide on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio so you can see it in real time as we talk about the stories. Also, remember to support our efforts by joining us as a member at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. You'll find the links for today's program on our abolitionist planning page. If you have a question or a comment, you can call us at 704-802-5056. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? How you doing this week, man? Hey, I'm I'm doing, <laughs> you know, as they say. I'm doing, as my uncle would say, I'm still walking on top of it. So I'm not going to complain too much, but it's a lot. Um, all, as always, man, there's always something going on in this world. But in terms of slavery in this country, you know, I'm just thinking about Juneteenth coming up and um, got a couple of local events that I'm going to try to attend. And I'd just like to put this suggestion out there to you abolitionists is if you would, you know, take your cell phone camera or, or you know, if you have a camera with you to one of these events and, and just ask people, what does Juneteenth mean to you? And, you know, of course, ask them if you can videotape and uh, ask them, what does Juneteenth mean to you? And after they give you your answer, their answer, then give them a copy or tell them what the 13th Amendment says and that it doesn't abolish slavery and then get their reaction. So just a suggestion out there um, for abolitionists just looking to spread the message of abolition. Exactly, Scotty. And for those that don't know what Juneteenth is, or for those who do think they know what it is, let me read to you the description directly from Juneteenth.com, which is the people that organize a lot of these events uh, and are financing a lot of these events every year. It says Juneteenth is the oldest known celebration commemorating the ending of slavery. You know, that tastes nasty on my tongue when I say that. Right? I don't even know how they can say it, and that's the problem. Anyway, it says... It's the oldest known celebration commemorating the ending of slavery in the United States. Dating back to 1865, it was on June 19th that the Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed at Galveston, Texas with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. Note that this was two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official January 1st, 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation had little impact on the tech on the Texans due to the minimal number of Union troops to enforce the new executive order. However, with the surrender of General Lee in a- April of 1865 and the arrival of General Granger's regiment, the forces were finally strong enough to influence and overcome the resistance. So they have a little bit more into it, but basically that's what they're celebrating, the end of slavery, albeit two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And that's just simply incorrect, and and you, we know how these lies got perpetrated. You know, if like Hitler said, if you tell a lie big enough, the people will believe it. And that's one big mammoth lie that was told to the American people and the rest of the world that, oh, we fought this civil war and we finally abolished slavery only to put an exception clause in the 13th Amendment. And so, you know, I would just advise people, if you if you do want to interact with people to, to let them know slavery was never abolished, you know, don't 
don't be humble when when you do it. Don't try to make them feel like, you know, they're stupid or something like that because, hey, I didn't know. Like Malcolm X said, you know, don't condemn that person because they don't know what you know because at one time you didn't know what you know. And, of course, I just paraphrased that. So our goal is not to antagonize but to educate. You know, Scotty, uh, when I was a young man and my children were young children, uh, I may have mentioned this before, but they were also a performing group, literally the first rap family in the history of hip-hop music known as FAM, three brothers and three sisters. And some of my most uh, cherished memories with them during their performances was leading the parades for Juneteenth, because we believed that. (laughs) Just like you didn't know, I didn't know either. We believed that slavery had ended, and we were so happy about that, that we were a part of this organizing Juneteenth events and then featuring as the artists who performed that during those events. Like literally at the front line on a parade float. That's how into it we were. But I learned better as I grew older. I mean, as these things started clicking into place, eventually it became pretty clear that slavery hadn't ended. And if slavery hadn't ended, then Juneteenth really is self-deception. I, I agree, so Max. I, I, I agree, Max. And you know, as we enter into our seventh season, I I like to think that we have contributed a great amount to the efforts to educate people about the Thirteenth Amendment and exactly what it says and exactly what it means. So, you know, um, I'm you know, st- we still at it. There are two things that very likely won't go together well on June nineteenth. That's Juneteenth, the idea, along with the film 13th. You, those two together, right there, one is going to, to negate the other. And if people are involved in Juneteenth celebrations, maybe the day before you should look at 13th together as a group. So when you come and talk the next day, you might have a more informed opinion. Right, and you know... Don't take this the wrong way to you Juneteenth organizers out there, but I know like I was looking at another event that's uh, happening in this place I'd never heard of before in Charlotte called the African Global Village or something. It's like a bookstore or cafe or something like that, and they are sponsoring it, and they're selling a lot of you know Juneteenth gear and stuff like that. So like many holidays, you know, uh, people missed the true intent of the holiday even though Juneteenth is based on a lie Um, but you know they just want to make money off of these events and like you said you know lots of money is being spent to put on these events and it's just so sad and it speaks to our lack of self education it speaks to you know the corruption in the public education system because I look I ain't no no history professor but I can read and I can comprehend English and you know we have had law professors on who have confirmed our belief so it's no longer a belief it's a fact that the 13th amendment never abolished slavery man so you know, we just got to keep doing what we doing. And, you know, as abolitionists, we just got to keep spreading the message, fighting a good fight. And, you know, 
eventually we will be able to abolish uh, slavery in this country. You know, Colorado came close as a state with Amendment T, and I hope that, you know, they don't give up because it was narrowly defeated to change their state constitution to actually abolish slavery. I hope they don't, I hope that they keep trying to get their state constitutions changed, but, you know, um, I'm just going to stay, remain hopeful and keep at it, man. Well, you know, while we're talking about Juneteenth, let me just add some context and some historical facts to all of this. Because we're talking about, you know, this happening a couple of years after the Emancipation Proclamation, basically putting it at 1865 with the uh, 13th Amendment. Uh, actually, here I just recently found an article that talks about convict lease system in Texas. And guess when it began? The first leases in Texas came about in 1867, just two years later, when two railroad companies headquartered in the state hired prison inmates to help construct their roadbeds. The parties to those early agreements, despite the euphemism that greeted them, did not anticipate all of the problems inherent in such a contractual arrangement. The most difficult problem resulted from the conflict between the profit motives of the contractors who wanted to get the most labor possible from the prisoners at the least cost and the interests of the state, which wanted at least a minimal effort to provide adequate food, clothing, and shelters for the prisoners. Hmm. Owing to the many difficulties encountered in the course of administering the early leases, state officials abrogated the contracts after only a few months and the prison inmates were returned to the penitentiary. So they went right into convict leasing like two years after they allegedly ended slavery right there in Texas. Exploiting that loophole in the 13th Amendment. You know, that's why I shot uh, the statue of Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial, the bird, because that man was fully aware of what he was doing. He was capitulating just as he tried to do in before the Civil War. He was capitulating to these slavers and oh we don't plan to bother you and your property and your slaves and and all this and that he was forced into that war because of because of they didn't believe him (laughs) you know so they started succeeding and so he was a union man he was gonna keep the union together and in his own words you know he didn't care if slavery remained intact or if it was abolished as long as the union stayed together, man. So some of the things that you just described from that article, the minimum requirements of food and, and what have you, we hear those same things going on in the prisons and jails today. Right you know, now, exactly. Exactly, you know, with what right was that? Now. The state of Louisiana where the sheriff gets to pocket what he doesn't spend on food and they give him a bare minimum. Yeah, he just got voted out, as a matter of fact, and replaced, but not before he made $750,000 in profit by skimming the food to the people in jail. Now, he's just a damn sheriff, man. What does a sheriff think? A hundred grand, 80 grand? But he bought himself a nice little beachfront property worth $740,000 with the money that he collected from the state that was intended to feed these inmates. And instead, he was feeding them garbage and trash and things that, you know, we wouldn't allow anywhere in the civilized world. And it was completely legal. It's a human rights issue. It was completely legal and still is legal. Right, it's legal. And legalizing things seems to be the magic word to make everything okay. You know, if you want to 
uh, commit genocide, all you got to do is legalize it. And nobody's got anything to say because it's the right, law, right, you know? Right. If you want to commit slavery, you just legalize it. And it's the law, you know? Yeah, you want to bomb a country and destroy it? Just, just get permission it. from Congress. Get a resolution from Congress or something. Then you can go destroy whatever nation you want because then it's legal, you know? Yes, yeah, like some magic words. All you got to do is just say that. It's legal and it's all okay. There's no problem after that. Well, we are the problem. And, it, and despite it being legal, that is the problem. See, there's two types of slavery, uh, in case you might not be aware. There's legal slavery and there's illegal slavery. Illegal slavery is like what you hear about happening in the Middle East, uh, even where uh, women are being trafficked for sex and they're treated as slaves and owned as slaves. Africa, well, that's illegal too. Slavery. Africa, too. Yeah, in Africa, too. That's all illegal. There's no law allowing that. And those people are treated as criminals. But there's then there is the legal slavery where the state can do the same thing that those sex traffickers can do, but they get to do it legally and everything is okay. It's part of your constitution. Just read it. it says it right there, except for prisoners not uh, prisoners duly convicted. All you need is a conviction. It don't matter what the conviction is, because if you're in Georgia, for instance, their state constitution says all you got to do is give the finger to the judge and you can become a slave for contempt of court. Yeah, so we we have um, a huge battle ahead of us, and we knew this when we went into this seven years ago. And you know, I'm not giving up, Max. I'm not giving up. Uh, yeah, I'm going till I can't go no more. <laughs> That's the best I can say, man. Or until it's done. And you know, I have hope, Scotty. I really do keep hope alive inside myself. But I'm also somewhat of a cynic. And I don't expect the way things are going now for me to see the change I want to see in my lifetime. And I, I might have to accept the fact that I just got to pass the baton. And you and me and all the others who are fighting now may not be the ones to get it done. Like the right. kids growing up right now, learning from us, will probably be the ones to get it done. Well, and they'll be fighting a bigger battle than we are right now. You know, the way I look at it is the same. I look at what Frederick Douglass and other abolitionists was doing prior to the American Civil War in agitating and sowing seeds for uh, the greatest uh, rebellion against slavery to ever occur on this continent. And so we're, we're, we're sowing seeds, man, and we may be around to see those seeds sprout and flower and what we may not. But we are sowing those seeds. Right, we have to. we got to be husbandmen about this and sow those seeds, as you said. Because the fight that we're fighting right now uh, wasn't passed to us as something that had already been ended. The people before us had to pass it to the next generation. And then now we apparently have to do the same thing. I hope it doesn't take more than one more generation. And I really hope that it would be in this generation. But I just don't see it happening at this point, man. The, the propaganda machine that is fighting against us that thing is like powers and principality. I mean, literally, we have just heard the news that, uh, what is it, that the merger between uh, Fox and Fox Industry, Fox Media. No, it's not and, Fox. Uh, it's um, AT&T and Time Warner. Yeah, and Time Warner. I mean, look at that right there. I mean, you think it's not dangerous to have all of our media just controlled by two or three corporations? It's already controlled dangerous. by six. Just six corporations control global, not just here in the United States, but they control 
um, 95% of global media, six corporations. And who knows, you know, after this ruling uh, by the U.S. federal courts allowing Time Warner and AT&T to merge, we may be looking at just two. Just that's what I mean. Just two or three. That's dangerous. Yeah, it's the matrix, man. That's how you construct the matrix. That's how you give people a false reality that slavery was abolished. You know, you create when when you are when everybody's looking to you for the news and and you know you control the mouthpieces and you control the narrative. I mean. People will believe it, man. It's 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 right. exactly like the Matrix, man. You living in a false reality because you haven't discovered the facts for yourself. And speaking of propaganda, Max, you know I always look for opportunity to piggyback on to something that the nation is talking about and interject. You know uh, the fact that they never abolished slavery into it, but you know Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un met the other day and most of the people who were speaking against it and trying to downplay the meeting um, and what have you, it was usually along partisan lines, but you know, their common thing was, well, you know, what about North Korea's human rights violations? And so I have to interject and I did interject into that. You know, why, why are you pointing fingers at North Korea talking about some human rights violations as if the United States has such a stellar record. Hell, we still practicing slavery. Check out the 13th Amendment. We're throwing children in cages after separating them from their parents. In Texas and in Michigan, you know, uh, we got reports that children were being abused sexually and physically. Otherwise, well, sexual is physical abuse, but, you know, all of the class action lawsuit by the teenagers in Michigan for being raped in prison, including by some guards and what have you. Sister Dominique Wilkins down in Texas blowing the whistle about how they were starving, like you were just saying, giving them the minimum amount of food. This is what somebody who worked in the system uh, came out and state all of this is going on the rapes the beatings uh, in these pr- and you want to talk about some other country man please if you read frederick Douglass's autobiography him and both harry jacobs talked about the times uh during the chattel slavery pre-civil war antebellum period and the slavers prided themselves i mean they would have competitions on who fed their slaves the best like, which one of their slaves got to eat the best? Who provided the best meal? Because it seemed to them during that period, it would be a shame or a dishonor if their slaves or enslaved people were not fed well. So they were often in competitions to make sure that they all ate. And now, with the advent of convict leasing, as described by Jay Mancini in the book, One Dies, Get Another, the sentiment about that property changed. And it became... As he quoted, as he said, uh, to quote him, that com- the only difference between convict leasing and slavery was with criminals so plentiful, uh, they were seen as disposable. So the people became disposable, like literally, as as they are right now. Right, right. Well, let me tell you who's behind a lot of this, because this is what opened the door, not only for the private industry, but also it became a benchmark that the state, federal, and local uh, prisons and jails and detention centers 
started to follow. And eventually we came to where we are now, where our uh, Department of Justice ba basically is a for-profit industry. It follows market values. But one of the big players behind it is the GEO Group. And just recently, there's this update that came out that says within the Texas legislature, a controversial bill is pending. A private prisons company called the GEO Group has allegedly asked Republicans to submit a law that could lead to immigrant children being indefinitely detained in its lucrative centers. Representatives John Rainey, John Cryer, and Mark Coe, all Republicans, have authored legislation that, if passed, would allow immigration detention centers to obtain child care licenses. Equipped with the permits, the centers would then be able to circumvent a 2015 federal ruling that said detained immigrant children must be transferred to a child care facility within 20 days in detention. Rainey, Cryer, and Coe's bill would not require the detention centers to change their setups, but it could significantly benefit them. The GEO Group, which runs the Carnes Residential Center, one of the two family detention facilities in Texas, earns $55 million annually from the facility. At present, just 100 of its 830 beds are occupied according to the Associated Press. I want to pause right there. I want you to think about those numbers. They earn $55 million annually from just 100 beds. That They don't need a lot. So you got to imagine how much they're charging per child per year. The math is available that anybody wants to do it. And if you do it, please call into the program and tell me what the numbers are. That's $55 million annually from 100 children. That's this just one facility. Say, Right. That's Say, just one facility. Right. That's one facility. And they have the potential for 830 more children. Guess what, though? Um, um, and I read this recently uh, from Florida. Guess who's the highest paid uh, CEO in Florida? George Zoli. Yes, sir. They talk about him in this article. That's the final paragraph. It says this perhaps explains why the geo group despite having a Greek immigrant, George Zoli, as its CEO, is so keen to see Rainey, Cryer, and Cole's bill pass. So keen, in fact, that the organization essentially wrote it. I've known the lady who's the CEO's group's lobbyist for a long time, Rainey told the Associated Press. That's where the legislation came from. We don't make things up. People bring things to us and ask us to help. So just like they said in the film, The 13th, Literally, the prison companies are writing your goddamn laws. I mean, how can you not be upset about that? It's a fact. And I, I, to answer your question, Max, I, I don't know how people could not be upset by that unless you are uh, um, racist and you know that the majority of the people impacted are non-white. They're black. And they're, you know, whatever South American country they come from, they're non-white people. And so you you pretty much don't care that your tax dollars are filling the pockets of immigrants like George Zoli and making them among the richest people in America and what have you. It's, it's just disgusting, man. And then, you know, you would think that it would move the needle for the primary victims, the targets and what have you. But there's there's. I encounter a lot of apathy, man, you know, a lot of misdirection and, and what have you. I'm not saying other issues aren't important, but if ending slavery 
isn't at the top of that list, then I, I just have to say you don't have your priorities in order. You talk about, you know, um, police brutality. You talk about, um, you know, these killings and what have you. you. You talk about all of these things and you're just talking about symptoms never getting to the root cause. Max? Yeah, I just wanted to do the math, and I did real quick, about how much the GEO Group is charging the U.S. taxpayer for each one of these immigrant children. And according to their own numbers right there, they were talking about $55,000 per child. $55,000 per child. To throw them in cages. It's crazy, man. It's crazy, and it's profit-driven. You know, they said that right now there's 10,000 migrant children who are in government custody at 100 shelters. So now you got to take your math even higher. 55,000 times 10,000, and that is the profit that they're making off of this. But, you know, there's never enough people there to care for them, and the same thing applies in the prisons. I was just recently shared a video by a friend of mine from the inside who showed me a snuff film basically where prisoners were killing another man and they were videotaping the whole thing and while they were killing this man no guards ever appeared so apparently there's not enough money in the bucket to pay for freaking guards for enough guards to even prevent a murder from happening in the day room I, yeah I saw that to... video I didn't want to share it because I don't like sharing snuff films and, and then the person who posted the video you know, it, it just wasn't framing it correctly. It, it was like, you know, hey, look at this. You know, so I, I'm not here to provide entertainment in the form of snuff films and what have you. But there was, I did see one guard in there. And I think they tried, you know, tried to pepper spray the people. That didn't get them off. Uh, then they threw like a little flashbang grenade. That didn't stop it. They they yeah, that did was two of them. like three minutes in. Yeah, that's after the dude been stabbed. I don't know how many times. In the you neck. know, yeah. man. And so, but you know, this is man. Go ahead, well, I, I was just saying, you know, again, the minimum. All right, that they don't provide proper uh, uh, personnel and staff in there. Um, and then, you know, it's it's cutting costs to provide more profit for the executives and, and you know, the, um, the uh, excuse me, <coughs> stockholders if we're talking private prisons. But if we're talking, you know, state-run facilities, hell, those guards don't get paid that much. I don't see why anyone would want to do that job. Yeah, here in South Carolina, there was a turnover rate of like 76%. <laughs> Three quarters of the people who get hired as prison guards either leave, get fired, or quit. I mean, it's just not worth it, and, and I can't blame them. You, you're in there, and you've got to be an engine of oppression in a situation that is something straight out of hell. <laughs> How do you live like that? And if you are fine with that, then you might be the problem. Yeah, you might be the person that's running the gladiator rings in there. Who knows, Max? They, the guards might have had a bet on whether this duel would survive or not. Uh, Scotty, are we going to take a break at 8.30? Was no, we take the break at the top of the hour. At 9, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm about as forgetful as they come on certain things, man. So I got to double check. I asked because I want to share some information that I 
did some research on and turned into a very simple blog. Uh, and I put it out recently. And it's called A Matter of Innocence. And I wrote this partially inspired by what's occurring with the Trump administration now asking football players uh, who they would suggest that they uh, be exonerated or be pardoned. Uh, as you know, we just recently had celebrities get somebody out talking to Trump. And apparently, I guess that's now the thing. You got to talk to these celebrities who in turn will go to the White House with your request about who should be pardoned. But see, there's this matter of innocence. Who is innocent? When you're talking about pardons, are you picking and choosing? Like, is it your preference? Is this because you like that person or they did something for you or you just happen to be attached to that person that you picked this one? Because the matter of innocence includes hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, I wrote, as I said, this blog. So if you don't mind, Scotty, I'd like to read it. I'm going to post it on New Abolitionist Radio. Nearly every word that I say here has a link in the word that you can click to show you exactly what I'm talking about. All right. So it says, while we're lobbying football players to pass on pardonable convictions to the white supremacist house, sociopaths like former NYPD detective Louis Garcella are walking free and collecting a state pension, even after framing so many young black men for crimes that they did not commit. And then you have a, a very large picture of two dozen men. And I say, you see these faces? They are just three short years of Brooklyn exonerations between 2014 and 2017, courtesy of the Conviction Review Unit, CRU, started by the late, rest in peace, Ken Thompson. Most of them were railroaded by the aforementioned demon, Louis Scarcella. There are cities all over America with a list bigger than Brooklyn's, like Chicago's former police, police sergeant, Ronald Watts, former Chicago police commander, John Burge, Chicago police detective Ronaldo Guerrero, the latter of whom has been connected to over 100 black men being framed, 51 of them for murder. Entire police departments have been exposed in what was, has got to be called a genocide. So here's the quote from the Innocence Project. It says, according to documents obtained by the Alabama Justice Project, up to 12 officers working in the Dothan Police Department's narcotics squad reportedly participated in the scheme, which began in 1996 and specifically targeted young black men. Most of the young men were subsequently prosecuted and imprisoned, with some still incarcerated. And it doesn't stop with cops. All across the nation, cases have been exposed where crime lab technicians framed tens of thousands in cash incentive schemes set up by private prison industries who pay for positive drug results. The number of victims could easily reach 100,000 or more, maybe double that. Annie Dukin, a chemist who worked at a Massachusetts State Lab drug analysis unit, is responsible for over 60,000 false drug reports, and at least 1,200 people are in prison right now because of her. The case against her had more than 60,000 drug samples involved with 34,000 defendants, citizens of Massachusetts. Nearly every city in the U.S. which uses crime lab technicians has a big problem, and a huge number of innocent people and their families have been destroyed by institutionalized racism and unchecked greed. Drug testing is big business. It destroys the lives of entire swaths of American citizens whose rights are being violated wholesale every day. Sometimes they will throw your entire life away for as little as a $10 profit. 
Annie Dukin's story is done already. She spent less than two years in prison and is free right now, just like Louis Scarcella, while her victims are still in prisons. If you casually add up the numbers of victims I refer to just in this simple note, you're talking about an easy quarter million innocent people. And that is just the beginning. So who should be pardoned and who should we send our list of pardonable names to? That's a damn good question. Vice reports that as many as 120,000 innocent people are in prisons now. As someone who has studied this system for decades in ways others don't, simply due to my personal belief that this is slavery and has nothing at all to do with justice, I estimate that the number is at 1.5 million in prisons and 8 million in jails. And yes, I'm serious. Let me put it this way. If your village has to offer a human sacrifice to the gods every day, and then one day the high priest says, we're only going to sacrifice one person a week now. That is not an improvement. Two things you cannot fix. They can't be reformed or made less inhumane. Slavery and genocide. Those are evils you abolish in all its guises. The last time we tried it, it led to the largest slavery rebellion in U.S. history, the Civil War. Now, I pray that we don't repeat history, but I hope that the masses are willing to do so if necessary. So here's my suggestion. Send your list to the Innocence Project. Let them talk to the celebrities. If you're, and then I went on later and said, if you're interested in hearing more from an abolitionist perspective, tune into New Abolitionist Radio like you're doing right now and every week. Somebody's got to make sense out of all of this because the thought leaders you have now, they ain't thinking about you. Scotty? I agree with that ideal. And actually, Max, I was sitting here thinking before you got into it when you mentioned the football players, and I ain't got nothing against the football players. They've been, you know, some of them been doing the best that they know how to do to bring attention to these issues. Shout out to Malcolm Jenkins. Shout out to Colin Kaepernick and and, uh, other athletes and what have you. Um, But again, y'all still focusing on the symptoms. We got to get y'all to get get knowledgeable on what the 13th amendment means and and what it says and all of that good stuff. Um, but I, that's a great idea. Get these, get these athletes to get in touch with the innocence project. They may have a state innocence project, you know, get in touch with those organizations that are fighting for them, you know, but, um, here's the thing though. Donald Trump can only pardon those in federal prison or commute their sentences that's in federal prison. The majority of the victims of slavery are in state prisons. So, you know, that's still in jails. jails, Yeah. So, so, you know, it's still limited, but I'll take, I'll take as many as I can get free. And like I said, I know, you know, Donald Trump, I don't believe that he's sincere about this, but if he wants to campaign and try to get the black vote or any other vote by saying, I will pardon thousands of people and you NFL players submit some names and applications. If I was one of those victims of slavery, I wouldn't care how I got out and who pardoned me. And I will say, though, Donald Trump has done something unprecedented in starting to issue these pardons in his first term. How many did Obama issue? How many did Clinton issue? How many did Bush issue? Usually they wait till their last term or the last few months. And then, so yeah, Donald Trump is atrocious, but if we can get inroads and then we need to take those inroads again, Lincoln was a racist. 
But that didn't stop. That didn't stop stop Martin Delaney. It didn't stop Frederick Douglass. It didn't stop other abolitionists from approaching Lincoln and pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. Okay, so the fact that Donald Trump is a racist, uh, uh, you know, that shouldn't deter anyone in their fight to get people free. So, but I do love your idea that these athletes who do take them up on this offer, and I've yet to see anyone take them up on this offer, should be getting advice from the Innocence Project. Yeah, it's just amazing, man, how they try to use us, <laughs> you know, like, okay, here, we're going to give you this uh, concession and give us a couple names and now everything's going to be okay. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, when I was talking earlier about it, it gets down to the point now, favoritism, like, why are you picking these guys to tell you who it is when there's already organizations all set up with all the data to let you know everything you need to know? Why are you circumventing them? And going to somebody who is not because it's a political stunt. Already. It's a political uh-huh. stunt. He's had a very public fight with the NFL yes. players and, and what have you. And so, at the end of the day, yeah. you know what he's going to have? He's going to have a bunch of people who says, "I love Trump. I, I'll vote for Trump because he helped my friend get out." Yeah. <laughs> you know? And if you get about two thousand friends, you got a, a big deal going on right there. Well, again, Meanwhile, Max, I'm just of the opinion. Of who need to be free. Yeah, but I'm just of the opinion, man. We free as many as we can. I don't care who set them free. You know what I'm saying? As long as they get free. And like I I, I had uh, said earlier, you know, through social media, don't mean I'm a kiss his behind or I'm going to vote for him. But he's more than welcome to to you know try to get my vote by doing this. We got to play the game like they play the game. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I'm just remembering though that the day that Donald Trump was elected, the prison stocks shot up by almost a hundred percent. I'm also remembering that a couple of days before the election, the Geo Group, which has those contracts right now that we just talked about, fifty-five thousand dollars a year per child donated $225,000 illegally to a political group supporting Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Literally, he is working with the prison systems to increase their businesses. And guess how that happens? By putting more people in jails and prisons. We just played last week where he had these Alabama legislators looking at the prisons that were coming to their, their, their community through the $800 million budget that was provided to them as economic development programs. At no point did they mention how any of these people who are being imprisoned, uh, anything about their rights or anything about them at all, other than to make a simple statement about how they're trying to protect you from the evil do-gooders or do-batters who will come out and, and you know threaten your life. And basically that's what they said about these prisoners who are going to fill their facilities. Yeah. And the Geo Group alone has 70 correctional facilities. We're talking about major powers right now. Yeah, but, you know, going back to the 2016 election, you know, either way you was going to get a racist and you was going to get someone who, who you know, played a role in, well, I don't know what Trump's in, ever had any investments in private prisons uh, before then, you know, him running or whatnot. But we know the history of the Clintons and Hillary Clinton and what have you. So regardless of who won that election, you know, uh, we was going to be fighting, you know, that person. 
So, you know, again, I if if I was a victim of slavery, I wouldn't care how I got free, who gave me the pardon, you know. And but at the same time, you know, we just gotta keep pushing and pushing and pushing. You know, and Van Jones, you know, he up there working with Jared Kushner, uh, Trump's um, son-in-law on some reform instead of abolition. Why ain't Van Jones, uh, you know, saying nothing about it? Hey, hey, Mr. President, I'm working with your son-in-law. You know, I appreciate what you said to the football players, but they may not be the best people to make these recommendations. What you need to do is talk to these people at the Innocence Project. Yeah, <clears throat> they need to talk to somebody. And I think this is all a ploy. It's, you know, to placate a few people, make him look good, freeing a few, a few, as you said, you know, it doesn't matter. If you were a person being freed, you don't care how you got freed, as long as you got freed. That's what your family probably thinks too. But those people need to remember the people they left behind as well. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have uh, some time uh, before our break we'll open up the lines if anybody has anything opinions to add to this i see a few people in the chat there have something to say if you have anything to offer please just call in if you're already on the line just press star star to unmute yourself and for those that need the telephone number it's 704-802-5056 hey max free to call in and share your opinion hey max i do want to share some of this video from the real news i'm not sure of eddie conway um who interviewed you you know, about uh, the uh, Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March and abolitionism in general. But one of our listeners and volunteers uh, in the UK shared this um, video from The Real News with me about political prisoners because, you know, that, that's, that is who I would want to see free, the Move 9. But again, the Move 9 is in there under state state charges not federal charges and a lot of these political prisoners are under state charges and but Otis posted in the chat room submit political prisoners names well a lot of these political prisoners are not in prison under federal charges it's under state charges but I I could be incorrect there may be a few that's under federal you know jurisdiction and not state jurisdiction um, but I do want to play about maybe five ten minutes of this because again you know as i mentioned earlier people want to talk on television want to talk about north korea's human rights violations and they need to release these prisoners and and all this and that and uh, mm-hmm. again if you live in a glass house you shouldn't be throwing stones you know what i'm saying so if you don't mind i like to play about 10 minutes of it Sure. Just to answer your question that you asked originally, I have uh, spoken with Eddie Conway and done interviews with him about the 13th Amendment and also about the Convention of States. So I did two interviews with him. And for those that don't know, Eddie Conway himself was at once a prisoner for nearly political three decades. Yeah. Political prisoner connected to the Black Panther Party, his work with them. All right. So, yeah, this is from The Real News. Uh, Check them out on YouTube. So let me cue this up. Not going to play it all. Yes, yeah, not Eddie Conway. Real news. I'm Ben Norton. I'm ben here Norton. with Nino Brown, who's an organizer in the Boston area. And he works on several different issues. And we're going to talk about a few different things today. But first, we're going to talk about political prisoners. Uh, frequently, when we hear in the U.S., when we hear about political prisoners, we almost always hear about political prisoners in other countries, as if there are no political prisoners in the U.S. But there are. 
there are many former Black Panthers and others in the Black Power Movement, Native Americans, and, and others. And today we're going to talk about some of the work Nino has been doing organizing a, to free political prisoners in the United States. Thanks for joining us, Nino. Glad to be here. So can you just talk about the state of political prisoners in the United States? Well, currently, I think, as you said, uh, the United States has dozens of political prisoners that are, uh, they, they've been uh, incarcerated primarily because of their beliefs. They go against American capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, what have you. And they're, they're really uh, soldiers from a past era of movement, the Black Power Movement, uh, American Indian Movement, uh, Chicano Movement, uh, and so on and so forth. So today we have movements uh, like Jericho that are trying to rekindle the general movement and consciousness around political prisoners because uh, we still have to deal with the fact that uh, we have only 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's uh, incarcerated. And those who are incarcerated from the past uh, large social upheaval, we have just gems of knowledge, you know, uh, 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 important people to movements and communities just riding behind cages, all because uh, they chose to uh, challenge American power, uh, capitalism, racism, uh, patriarchy, um, such as Mumia Abu-Jamal, Leonard Peltier, uh, most recently Red Fawn. She was an indigenous woman who was uh, entrapped by the FBI during the uh, Standing Rock movement. Uh, so we have not only political prisoners uh, who are, you know, older elders, but we have new political prisoners uh, entering into the United States prison system uh, every year. Yeah, and at The Real News, in fact, we work with Eddie Conway. He frequently you know, produces shows and, and hosts for us here at The Real News. Um, he was himself an incarcerated political prisoner um, for decades. Um, can you also talk about some of, some of the recently released prisoners like Herman Bell and others who are still incarcerated, specifically from the Black Liberation Movement? So we still have, uh, well, recently, Herman Bell came out and was being harangued around the conditions of his release. Uh, about two, three years ago, Sekou Odinga came out um, or was released. Um, but we still have Jilla Montakim, Mumia Abu-Jamal, um, and many others from the Black Power movements that are still incarcerated. Uh, and there are others in uh, the, the broader social movements that we don't hear about, like the... Uh, past Weatherman Underground, like David Gilbert. Um, however, the, the list of new political prisoners, uh, that's yet to be uh, uh, ex not explicated, but just uh, uh, itemized, you know? Um, so I consider uh, folks who uh, were involved in the anti-Trump protests, who were facing charges, uh, some of who were incarcerated as political prisoners, um, I may not know all their names, but uh, the conditions of why they were incarcerated uh, is inherently political uh, because they chose to take a stand against uh, what they see to be a rising uh, fascist government and movement. Um, so yeah, this is a reference to the J20 protests yes. on January 20th of, of last year, um, 2017. There were uh, more than 200 protesters uh, who were all just rounded up, kettled by cops, and all charged with a variety of charges some of some of some major felonies uh, that could have led to decades in prison 
Um, some of the prisoners have had their, some of the uh, detainees have had their charges thrown out, um, but there are still dozens more, and the trials are ongoing with almost no media coverage. I think what's fascinating as a journalist is we have all these corporate media outlets that have rebranded in the age of Trump as part of the resistance, as anti-Trump. The Washington Post has democracy dies in darkness on the top of its newspaper, but they have no interest in these activists who put their bodies on the line to protest Trump at the inauguration and in some cases faced decades in prison. Yeah, exactly right. So uh, what we're trying to do with Jericho is really uh, expand uh, what do we mean by political prisoners uh, in addition to highlight the fact that the United States is uh, not an exceptional nation um, where it can point and wag its finger at other countries for having political prisoners when they have uh, prisoners right here uh, in the United States. Um, I know in Massachusetts, uh, we have several friends who are friends of uh, Jericho uh, who are facing uh, repression inside prisons just for speaking up around their basic, basic uh, uh, human rights and conditions of life. Um, yeah, let's talk more about this, because what's interesting is there are two narratives I think that need to be debunked. One, that the U.S. doesn't have political prisoners, but two, also that the conditions that these people are under are somehow humane. I mean, we're talking about absolutely horrific, inhumane conditions that violate international law in every single way. Can you talk about some of the conditions that some of these prisoners in Massachusetts are forced to live under? So uh, an example that Jericho is really focusing on now is the, the prison in Norfolk, uh, MCI Norfolk. So this is the, the same prison that uh, Malcolm X went to when he was Detroit Red, uh, criminal, gangster, etc and transformed his life, became Malcolm X. And fast forward to today, uh, in 2011, uh, all the state environmental agencies said that the water filtration system in Norfolk uh, was uh, defunct. And you know the prison said, we're gonna fix it, we're gonna change it. Uh, 2017, nothing has happened. The Boston Globe put out a uh, expose of what was going on in the prison after the prisoners began to agitate organize around their own conditions um, and expose the system, expose the prison system uh, for its inhumane treatment of them. So uh, what the prisons are being subjected to uh, is being, they're drinking black, or forced to drink and bathe in black uh, and brown water, sometimes gray, uh, that has high levels of uh, magnese, uh, iron, um, and other harmful chemicals, um, all the while, while these prisons are forced to labor uh, do work, otherwise they face uh, the whole solitary confinement and other medieval forms of torture, I would say. Um, all the while, while they train these guard dogs uh, who are drinking clean bottled water. So here we have a clear example of just a gross violation of human rights where prisoners uh, who are, you know, are workers, a part of the working class, uh, predominantly black and brown, uh, agitating around their own conditions just to get clean water uh, and are being thrown into the hole, are being repressed. Um, some of our friends have written letters to them uh, and had our letters intercepted. Um, yeah, but that says everything. You okay, I'm going to stop it there. I'm going to post the link to the video. It's already posted in btrcommunity.com, but I'm going to post it to our uh, Facebook page, New Abolitionist Radio. So, um, again, you know, like the guy said, how you gonna be wagging your finger at Kim Jong Un or or uh, Bashir Assad or or pick a person? 
Pick a country. How are you going to be wag- wagging your fingers and you still practicing slavery? You're in violation of all sorts of international laws. And, and you know, what really disgusts me is the general public, um, for the large part, doesn't care. Doesn't. They will usually retort with, hey, you, you, if you can't do the time, if you didn't want to be there, you shouldn't done the crime. You know, justice never enters into the picture. Um, so I, I agree with what the brother said. It's nothing exceptional about the United States. And then, you know, Max, and, and I'll cut my comments short here before we go to the break. This woman, a black woman on Twitter earlier today was, you know, goading Donald Trump and saying how, oh, the, the world, the uh, United States became a world leader um, you know, took all these years to become a world leader and Donald Trump destroyed that in six months. And I was like, a world leader in what? In what? In incarcerating his own citizens and shooting his own citizens and throwing children in the detention facilities and, and you know, just, I mean, the cognitive dissonance in and these folks that, that want to buy into this hype that America is exceptional, man, it's just disgusting to me, Max. We heard the same story when the United States charged China at the United Nations with human rights violations for what they were doing with their prisoners, using their prisoners to create these cheap products that they would then sell to U.S. citizens and all abroad. Actually, you know, a lot of these cheap toys that we were getting apparently were being made by prisoners. But the U.S. was doing that in complete denial of what they were doing at home on a much grander and larger scale. They had done it so well that once again, the rest of the world followed their model of slavery and human trafficking. All the way up to the point now where just about every nation on earth has private prisons in them or is using the prison industry as an economic development program. Or jobs program, yeah. Yeah, or jobs program. I mean, they'll keep 20,000 people in prison so 700 people can stay employed. (laughs) That's how they roll. Right. And God forbid anything threaten those 700 people's jobs. (laughs) No, no, don't let that happen because then we'll go to the private prison companies and we'll let them write some laws for us to get that all straightened out, right? Right. So yeah, man, uh, I'll put up the uh, China UN thing. It's just it's just hypocrisy, like what we see right now with the Kim Jong Un meeting. You remember when uh, Obama said, you know, I want to speak to him. I'll speak to our friends and our enemies. And the whole Republican Party was like, this guy wants to talk to madmen. What makes him think that any of these lunatics are going to be able to have a conversation with us and that we can bargain with them or they ever I mean they really went in hard on Obama for even insinuating to the world he was willing to talk to these people <laughs> but look yeah at but that was a bunch of BS though that was a bunch of BS huh? though man you know um I, I get so sick of the Obama worshipers man because hey he had a chance to talk to Muammar Gaddafi, an ally of the United States, who had given up his pursuit of nuclear weapons and destroyed his chemical weapons and, and wanted to normalize relationships and get sanctions lifted. Did everything, even assisted them in the war on terror. And then the State Department 
start telling these lies. Oh, Gaddafi's killing his own people. This is part of the Arab Spring. They're rising up for freedom and all this and that. A bunch of lies. And then Gaddafi sent a communication to Obama, even referring to him as a son of Africa and saying, don't believe the lies, brother. Talk to me. Let's talk about this. These are terrorists that I'm putting down. Don't believe these lies and what have you. And, and we know, you know, what what was the result? The most pro- prosperous and developed nation in Africa uh, is now one of those asshole countries that Donald Trump was talking about that also has open air slave auctions. So, open. yeah, yeah, but uh, but you're right. I did a BTR commentary earlier today where I was pointing out the hypocrisy. You know, the same people that was praising Obama for talking to Cuba and normalizing, trying to normalize relationships with Cuba that was talking all that junk about Obama is now praising Trump and reaching, which is the right thing to do is to talk. You know, diplomacy before war and what have you. And But the people that were praising Obama are now criticizing Trump. The people that was criticizing Obama is now praising Trump for doing one of the same exact things. It's just, man, we live in such a, a, a hypocritical country, man, with, that does nothing but spread confusion. Yes, very much so. Even North Korea a few years ago uh, put out a video talking about America and what they were doing in their prisons. The whole goddamn world knows what you're doing here in these prisons and what you're doing with them. But they're in complete denial. People from uh, human rights networks have to sneak into prisons in order to be able to view with firsthand accuracy what is going on because they won't let them in. They're banning people from coming in and doing interviews. I was a part of that myself. Whereas, you know, last year, uh, as I said, uh, uh, Al Jazeera tried to get me to come into the prison here in South Carolina and interview there while they interviewed the prisoners. I was going to do some poetry and talk, but apparently that got stopped too. (laughs) That got stopped too. They don't want anybody that can put any pieces together to walk through those doors and see the human rights violations happening every single minute. Well, Max, we do need to take our break. Sorry about that, Scotty. Well, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network, and we're always talking about the number one issue, modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We'll be right back after these messages. program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, you're here with Max Parthas and Scotty Reed. Uh, the phone lines are open and uh, if we don't get any calls, we'll just go into the next story and start breaking down some of the information that we find. So uh, if you want to comment or question, that would be a good time. Alrighty then. Uh, Scotty, was there an article or story you wanted to cover in particular other than the Real News video, which was uh, insightful, but 
they didn't go far enough, in my opinion. Well, we only heard like six minutes of a fifteen minute uh, video, so maybe they go into that later. But um, it's possible. Yeah. The Real News Network is excellent with that, Scotty. I have an entire playlist that I put on New Abolitionist Radio from the Real News Web Network that talks specifically about modern day slavery. And, and we definitely got some friends there. Um, you know, uh, Jared Ball. He actually attended the. Yes. Um, 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 march millions for prisoners human rights march in washington dc i saw him there as well as you know robert king and albert wood fox with robert king being one of the keynote speakers along with you max and and so you know i i really appreciate the work uh, that they do there at real news i'm kind of jealous of them man because they got they they doing it big time man i wish i had a budget like that but hey yep. you know do what you can with what you have that was a moment that I will never forget, Scotty Reed, to be a keynote speaker, one of the uh, final keynote speakers standing there with Robert King. Yeah, uh, like I in no, never in any dream of mine would I have imagined that moment. And it, it happened, you know, talking about slavery in front of the freaking White House. <laughs> All right, Scotty, uh, Scotty. <laughs> You were saying? Sorry about the interruption. No, I was. There was no other stories I wanted to talk about specifically. Again, it's something going on every day, Max. So you know, if you want to go ahead and hit the stories that you posted, uh, go right into it, brother. Awesome. Um, one that I do want to talk about comes from our allies at Shadowproof. They've published articles about uh, us here before, and they've always been supporters of the abolitionist movement. And I like to think, and I think I've heard them say it and write it, that they are an abolitionist group themselves. In any case, this comes from a lot of research, and it's titled, Since 1996, U.S. Agriculture Department gave over $277 million to fund local jail construction. You know, we often talk here about how they are using prisons and jails as economic development programs that guarantee jobs, that guarantee revenue, that uh, they can use as a sort of uh, population control aimed at specific populations. And here is how he shows that even the Department of Agriculture is a part of it. They look at these things like business startups, and you'll understand as I start reading. The United States Department of Agriculture provided over $277 million in funding for county jail construction since 1996, according to documents obtained by Shadowproof. The funding came in the form of grants and long-term, low-interest loans from the community facilities, direct loan and grant program run by the USDA's Rural Development Agency. Small rural communities are supposed to benefit from the CF program, which is designed to assist residents with the purchase, construction, or renovation of essential buildings such as hospitals, town halls, libraries, and food pantries. It also funds public safety facilities for fire, law enforcement, and corrections departments. CF programs loans typically have a 30 to 40 year term with fixed interest rates set by the agency, usually around 3 to 4%, grants are awarded primarily to small and impoverished countries and can only, or counties, I'm sorry, small and impoverished counties and can only account for a maximum of 75% of the proposed project costs. Some counties received a mix of grants and loans. North Carolina received the most money 
from the program over the last 20 years, with counties taking $66.7 million in loans since 2005. Their most recent loan was for nearly $20 million to renovate and expand Bladen County Jail in August 2015. Local jails detain a sizable portion of America's incarcerated population, which is the largest in the world as jail populations tripled in the decades following the 1980s, counties across the country embarked on a construction boom that drastically increased the country's carceral infrastructure. As the Prison Policy Initiative, PPI, notes, new policy strategies, new police strategies that increase like the likelihood that an interaction will result in arrest and a growing reliance on money bail as a wealth-based test on freedom help drive the rising jail population. Ballooning jail populations were behind most of the growth in the U.S. incarcerated population over the last few decades. Today, 731,000, or one in every nine, and one in every three incarcerated people in America are held within jails, roughly 63% of whom have not been convicted of a crime. The USDA plays a role in expanding the infrastructure of mass incarceration. They enabled tough-on-crime policies by funding projects in communities that otherwise could not afford them. Many of those projects involved updating or replacing dilapidated buildings that were overcrowded because of reliance on jailing. While the terms of these government loans were generally the best available option, repaying that debt still represented a significant challenge in counties with small budgets already saddled with other debts and struggling payments. For decades, jail and prison construction was touted as an important investment in public safety and economic security for struggling communities. Wow. Much doubt has been cast on this assertion, with studies indicating that such projects are economic black holes. Yes, they are. You just keep feeding it money. Jails and prisons are expensive to run, from staffing and overtime to medical care and litigation, especially as their capacity increases mental illnesses and addictions become increasingly represented within the population. Facilities do not always hire from the local population either, and even if they do, these are not good jobs, as evinced by high rates of alcoholism, depression, suicide, and meager wages and employee benefits. In most cases, USDA-backed jail projects call for building extra bed space specifically to generate revenue. Let me repeat that. In many cases, USDA-backed jail projects call for building extra bed space specifically to generate revenue. Local jails could incarcerate people on behalf of other counties, the state or federal marshals, and immigration officials for fee. Rural jail expansion is largely a local affair, but in this way it increases increased the collective carceral capacity of other governments as well. The practice gave local sheriffs a powerful incentive to endorse policies that contribute to unnecessary jail expansion, PPI researchers noted. USDA funding was often viewed as political pork, celebrated by government officials as evidence they were fighting for and winning valuable investments in their communities. Property taxes were often raised to both offset the debt and finance the jail's operation, which was often more expensive because of a need to hire much more staff uh, for larger facilities. There's about another two or three pages on here. I'm not going to read it all, but I really get the gist of what he's pointing out right here. I think this is brilliant. Um, it's really a huge expose on how the USDA is even involved in the slave system. 
Like you can't go nowhere. Wow. There is no system that doesn't have their hands in this as it had mm-hmm. always been. Right, man. I'll tell you, it's one of the main e- slavery was the main economic pillar of colonial America and of the United States of America. It always has been. Nothing has changed, man. Some of these states like Nevada got loans upwards of 15, 20, 30 million dollars and tripled their bed spaces in their jails. And by doing that, they created this huge revenue uh, income now. And it didn't come from consumers in the city itself. It came from the taxpayers all across the state. And in some cases, all federal, all across the nation who were literally paying for these slavers to enslave people. Yeah. When you need beds filled, you'll make a law if there ain't enough criminals. Exactly. You'll go create some. Exactly, exactly. It's it's those expenditures that uh Scott Brewer who was uh running for uh con- uh state house in Alabama was talking about. You know, you you put these expenditures in the in the budget to spend all this money and and it's going to get spent. And people going to come up with creative ways to get that money, you know, and and enslaving Mm -hmm. people. You handing it out, they will definitely find ways to use it. Uh, You know, like Alabama and their $800 million windfall that's supposed to go towards prisons and uh, rebuilding prisons and making new prisons and new jails. It's just amazing how this is so clear. Like if you really just for an instance, as a person you know, who really didn't know anything about all of this. And you picked up the 13th Amendment and you read it. And then you heard what we're saying on here. You have a hard time trying to find a flaw in what we see. I mean, where is it? I don't see it. I think we got it right on point right here. This is modern day slavery and human trafficking. They are creating products out of people and they're doing it to specific communities. Although for the first time in history, people of any color now can be enslaved. There's a large, large a population of European Americans but all things being equal if it were truly mass incarceration there would be about 4 million more white people in prisons so it ain't mass incarceration that's for sure it's targeted incarceration it's slavery and involuntary right. servitude that's what the constitution says the US constitution that's what the state constitution says I believe I I, I just tend to believe them you know what I'm saying they put it on paper so uh, why should I say it's anything else it is what they say it is involuntary servitude and slavery don't believe the mass incarceration propaganda cause that's what it is I don't know you know, I, I, Michelle Alexander, I know her intent was was good, but she did us a disservice coining that phrase. Well, Brian Sonnenstein, who has heard us, heard me at speeches, has participated in the uh, August 19th um, Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March. He put a lot of work into this, and it really shows how these states, as I said, are using these as small business loans. Like, you want to make some money? I'll tell you what you do. You go build the prison. You don't need but like 20 cells. That's all you need, 20 cells. At $55,000 a person times 20, you're going to have a very nice income every right, year. And right, all you have to do right. is provide the minimum requirements to keep them alive. Yeah, and, and if you work and, them and, for free, that's extra money. And you you know, we learn and I do got a story I want to share that Tag sent us, but um before we move on, um remember when we would listen in on the Geo Group's calls and 
some of those people that was calling in, it was like they were running mom and pop private prisons and jails. You know what I'm yes. saying? You know, just mm-hmm. just a few sales and stuff, but enough to put a profit in their pocket. pocket. So it's disgusting, man. One of our listeners, longtime supporter, Brother Maurice, uh, told me about how the founder of CEC, because, you know, all these private prisons started popping up when the money showed up, so they were coming out of everywhere. But the founder of CEC was also a Vietnam War vet with him, and he'd saved his life in Vietnam. And then when he came back, this he's a white guy, and Maurice is a black guy. In any case, uh, when he came back, he created this youth facility, and he had all the greatest of intentions in the beginning but then the government got his hands into it and then turned it into something else. And eventually became the third largest for-profit private prison corporation in the, in the world. And they had facilities all the way out to California, to New Jersey, and even here in South Carolina. But he said that, you know, once they got their hands in it, that was all it took. And then they turned it into something that he had never wanted it to be. And, uh, it's an amazing story. One, maybe one day he'll call in or we can get him as a guest and he could tell us the breakdown of how his relationship with this man. But he just passed away recently. And before he died, he wanted to tell uh, Maurice exactly what he did and why he did it. Because apparently Maurice inspired the whole thing. Mm. Well, the next story is uh, one that was shared with us by Tag. And I also had seen Otis tweeting about this on because it was apparently some kind of hearing or something i didn't have an opportunity to watch it at the time but uh tag sent this story he wanted us to share it's the nypd's expanding gang database it's the latest form of stop and frisk advocates say this was published in the gothamist that's gothamist.com it was published today uh, actually, and um, it says facing increasing pressure from community advocates and legal groups, NYPD officials were called to testify in front of the city council on Wednesday. Yeah, this was what was being streamed live to discuss the department's rapidly growing gang database and answer questions about why the surveillance tool is focused almost exclusively on non-white New Yorkers. The hearing came two days after a rare look at the targets of the NYPD's sweeping gang investigations, data obtained by Cooney Law Professor Babe Howe, first published by The Intercept on Monday, showed that the number of New Yorkers in the NYPD's gang database has jumped by 70% under Mayor Bill de Blasio. Okay, remember this is the dude who... who Supposed to be a Democrat for y'all partisan po- folks out there. And we talked about his black son. He's a white man married to a, a black woman and how he had to have a talk with his son about police. And he was being heralded as some kind of hero. But uh, look at what's occurring under his administration. So it says that uh, the database jumped by 70% under Mayor Bill de Blasio, even as crime has fallen to historic lows. According to how there were 42,334 names on the on the database as of February, and 99% of those added since the Blasio took office are people of color. That list of names includes hundreds of children between the ages of 13 and 16. So, uh, you know, again, 
and I don't mean to keep harping on this, but since, you know, this is what the mainstream media want to talk about, the human rights violations and despot, <clears throat> despotic regimes and what have you, you know, this just this just reminds you again, you know, making note that the Nazis learned their game from the Americans, but they had lists too. You know, we hear about these secret government lists and databases and, and all this and that, and, and it's going right. It, it's it's happening right here in New York and in Chicago as well, you know, with their predictive models and what have you. It goes on to say for me. May I speak? Um, once I'm done, um, and, okay. okay. For years, advocates have raised concerns about the shadowy database seen by some as a more damaging but lesser-known substitute for stop and frisk, which was ruled unconstitutional five years ago. New information on the department's precision policing strategies attained earlier this year by the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund and the Center for Constitutional Rights does little to ease those fears. The department's own definition of a gang member does not require any evidence of criminality and slides show that wearing a gang-associated color on a certain street corner or communicating with the wrong person on social media is enough to land a person in the database. So this, this just reminds me of the interview we did with the young man who was uh, targeted in the Bronx 120 uh, case and how they was targeting him through social media and what have you. And, and this guy's in college, you know. So, yeah. So that's that story. Uh, Tag wanted us to share the NYPD's expanding gang database is the latest form of stop and frisk advocates say. Max. I got nothing to add at the moment, Scotty. Uh, okay. Uh, I think story. that's Jay Skills that wanted to chime in. Uh, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. What's on your mind? Uh, there's a few things that were mentioned. I've been listening for a while, so I'm going to start from the most recent and go backwards. Okay, first and foremost, most people that talk about stopping first, I'm not sure if, you know, where you know where that started from, and I'm not questioning anybody's intelligence or challenging anyone. But that started under Mayor Rudy Giuliano. And the only reason why I know that is because he was associated with certain organizations that I went to prison for back in 1992. That's where the whole thing started. I have a few friends that are police officers that even told me before I got incarcerated and after I got incarcerated what was going on. Now. There is a certain sense of responsibility that needs to be taken into consideration for all of us. And that's going to go back to something I'm going to mention in a minute. But when we look at the databases that you were just mentioning in your report, we also need to keep in mind that there are so many, so many of our youth that do find a sense of security in our inner cities being involved in a gang in some form or fashion. So that has to do with proper parenting or not. Now, I'm from New York, so I know in detail in terms of the way the gangs work and everything else. And that is something that really needs to be taken into consideration. Lack of parenting means that the streets will raise our children. 
number one. I would like to go back a little bit further. Well, before you go back, for, go back further and be cognizant of time, because our time is limited. Try to keep your comments concise. But um, okay. before before I'll, you I'll do my, that, I'll before you do that, you talk about parity. Okay, but listen, let me interject this on on the game gangs. All right, um, I came I came from a family. My mom took me to church every Wednesday and still on Sundays and Wednesday night Bible studies as a, a preteen, adolescent, and then in my teenage years. All right. Uh, and it taught me morals, taught me values and what have you. I was living in the city of Detroit at the time, and I didn't seek out any kind of protection or anything like that, but I was getting jumped on by gang members every day because they wanted me to join them because I was big for my age, and I was known to be able to throw them hands, okay? So it was nothing wrong that my parents did, and even some of my friends in the gangs. I, you know, became good friends with some of them, visited their homes, and, and you know, it wasn't a lack of parenting. It was just the pressure that that street would put on you. Either I was going to fight every day or I was going to join them. So I ended up joining them, and that had nothing to do with how I was raised. And luckily, I did not kill anyone, even though I was involved in criminal activity. So I just wanted to interject that. I take your point that— No, I appreciate that. In yeah. the same breath, I go back all the way to the days in New York as far as the Hellcats, the Outlaws, the Tomahawks, before all of these other gangs that people talk about today. So I—, I have a sense of what uh, let me rephrase it I know what I've seen I'll just put it that way okay now I do want to go back to something else alright uh, sorry about that we were getting some background noise off of Max yeah, no, 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 no problem yeah, but go, move, move go on back. move on oh. Jay Skills to your next point you said you wanted to take it back to something earlier we discussed yeah you played uh, you, you played the tape of uh, a recording of a brother that was making mention of political prisoners, right? Right, from um, and, uh, uh, Jericho. I found that to be very interesting. And the main reason why I found it to be so interesting is, like, you know, yeah, Mamiya was mentioned. What happened to Atula Shakur? What happened to Sundiata Akule? does he even know or does anybody I don't want to say he and I'm not questioning again what anybody's knowledge is but who knows who Sunday Ada Akula is I know who he is he I was know. in the car with Asada okay. Shakur okay. same breath, same breath. This is, this is, this is, hold on a second hold please. on a second please this is the part that made me a little bit tight it's like did anybody mention on the shows that I've been listening to Joanne Chesimar who's actually my cousin, by the way. That's Asada Shakur. Yeah, that's actually my cousin. Okay. And, you know, when I when I hear things, some things offend me more than most, and I try not to comment on them, but sometimes I have to. And this is one of those moments that I do have to. Like, even the, the march on Washington, you know, for prisoners, there were only 2,000 people, maybe, in D.C. on that day. Okay, and when it's tried to be made into something that it wasn't, yes, that bothers me because I, this is something I live by because I lived 
through it. And even when we talk about, you know, prison for profit, one of the things that may not be such a bad idea to think about is when we talk about recidivism, what do we do as individuals once we get out to make sure we don't go back in? I got 22 arrests on my jacket. 22. I got out in 1994. I've been held on gun charges, assault charges, and everything else. But I got out of prison in 1994, and I have not been back in since. Okay, so that's you, Jay Skills, and, and we thank you for hey, your but comments. It, but again, it's our personal responsibility. Yeah, but I'm okay, I'm going to cut you off right there, Jay Skills, but I'm going to let you know now. We're not into victim blaming on the Black Talk Radio Network. We're not into blaming the victims of the system. What, what happened to you personally is you personally. Look, I didn't, I didn't live the life of crime in my past and done things that I know I shouldn't have done. And guess what? Never went to prison. Never been to prison. Never been to jail. Guess what? My little brother went to jail for a crime he didn't even do. So, you know, I get the personal responsibility and all this, but we're talking about a system that's designed to put people back into prison. And then your comments about the young man working with Jericho, which was founded by a political pr prisoner who was also at, at the march. Um, his name escapes me right now. And they have a branch in, in uh, New York, New York Jericho. Shout out. To uh, the people up there, I actually used to host a program called Political Prisoner Radio, focusing solely on the political prisoners. But my my um, other co-hosts, things happened in their life that they couldn't continue the program, and I couldn't do it by myself. So I try to incorporate these political prisoners in into the program. That young man, I'm sure knows who Sundiata Coley is. Who knows? all the names of the political prisoners because he's working for an organization started by a political prison. I mean, this is just a little 15-minute interview. He ain't posed, he, what is he supposed to just name everybody? You know, so we had to keep things in context, but one thing that I won't tolerate is victim blaming. You come on here blaming the parents and now you're blaming the individual for going back to prison. Okay? Uh, how you how you going to do that when you can't get a job, when there's a strike against you as a felon, all right, and they won't hire you, except for when you're in prison, okay? And so what are you supposed to do, okay? And then you can't even get food stamps or any kind of government assistance until you can find a job. So what are you going to do? You're going to go back to what you know, or how to put money in your pocket so you can eat, so you can have clothes on your back, so that you can have a roof over your head. So, I, you know, I'm always going to push back against victim blaming, but we appreciate your call. Max, you want to move on? Yeah, certainly. Um, I just want to say, yeah, I don't understand the comments that I just heard, particularly talking about or basically saying we did nothing at the Millions of Prisoners Human Rights March. It was only like 2,000 people there in Washington. What he didn't mention was the 19 freaking states that also participated in their states all across the country simultaneously and the fact that this was an abolitionist movement. And there ain't never been nothing like that. Ever like that. With 2,000 people right there. Not since before 1865. Yeah, since the 1800s. So, you know, you're, you're just misrepresenting the whole point of what occurred. If you don't agree with the abolitionist movement, talk about that. 
don't start attacking us personally. That's some ad hominem bullshit that you're pulling right now. And I don't appreciate it. And until you come back with an apology, don't come back. Period. Let's move on to the so, next story, Max. Um, well, actually, we're overdue for our break, and we got our regular segments to get to. We got Mind, Body, and Spirit coming up at 10 o'clock uh, p.m. So, um, but again, thanks, Tag, for sending that. Tag is is one of our abolitionist volunteers that's on the ground there in New York doing good work and working with these individuals uh, in terms of political prison, just in terms of oppression, period. So appreciate you, Tag. Um, Max, did let's take this break, and then uh, we'll come back if you got another story to share or if you want to jump into our regular segments. Yes, sir. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network, where we're talking about modern-day slavery and human tra- trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. We'll be right back after these messages. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, Scotty, I, I think what I'm going to do, man, because that just threw my whole thing off. Right? You know, just, I don't need that negativity like that coming. In any case, it just threw me off. So let's do the final uh two segments are riders of the 21st century abolitionist oh, Max, movement. Max, Max, before you do that, I'm sorry, brother. Let me interject. I think this is this right to vote campaign is an important story to share if you want to share that one and then go into um, the segments. Yes, yes. Uh, let me pull it up here uh, and then I'll... I talked to uh, Krista Roundtree recently. She's one of the people who organized the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, which is now the Humans of Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Organization and who are helping us to get the uh, <clears throat> congressional hearings of discovery on the 13th Amendment. And she said that this is a big thing they're working on right now. And if we could help with that, that would be the most important thing. So I'm passing that on to our listener base. And here's an article that says, Right to Vote is a nationwide campaign being initiated by people currently confined in the United States. This campaign grew out of the August 21st prison strike demands, specifically point 10, saying... The voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count. To meet this demand, a collaborative effort of prison lead organizations and outside allies have an ongoing mission to bridge the gap with people that were formerly confined in order to build a potent voting block. The Right to Vote campaign has incorporated two initiatives, Bar to Ballots and Vote for Me. Inside U.S. prisons, there has been a wave of awareness building amongst those confined who understand that they must gain political power by capturing their right to vote in order to end the dehumanization process in the U.S. jails, prisons, and even after release. With no political input, prisoners are easily exploited as a cheap labor and commodities. A lack of political power directly influences sentencing living conditions, and the expansion of the prison-industrial-slave complex. There is no secret as to why our country today has the world's largest prison population. For the people that were formerly in prison, they find themselves functioning in society as second-class citizens without the bars. In a few of our eyes, the U.S. has created a distinct class, i.e. prison class, a class of people 
that are denied the basic fundamental right in a democracy, the right to vote. Many currently informally combined people pay taxes but are barred from voting. With we, the prison class, demand an end to taxation without representation. The right to vote campaign is historic in its efforts to build a national movement from inside in collaboration with those formerly in the same shoes to make every vote count. And they say if this campaign's focus uh, to de de develop political capital by organizing families, friends, and organizations that are allies to those currently and formerly inside with political credibility, we can have a degree of say in changing laws for a larger portion of those who are disenfranchised. Cause reductions in the U.S. prison population, improve pr prison conditions, force sentencing reforms, and force the closing of prisons and jails by re-enfranchising all those who have fallen short according to society's terms. We end the mockery of a country claiming to be the beacon for democracy while taxing a class of people that are denied the right to vote. Taxation without representation. Yeah, taxation without All the families, I mean, they got no representation in this, but uh, we've seen some representation start to form in political parties now, and, and we're happy to have seen that. It's not enough to make every change happen immediately, but we've seen the process. And many of you listening to us regularly have seen it, too. I'll go Scott. through real quick, Max, um, their recommendations on how to do this. How will we do this? Organize families, friends, and local community. Point two, allied organizations inside coordinators will confer with local or outside right to vote volunteers for these campaigns so you can volunteer. States, this is a national campaign. People must have the right to vote in every state. Media, right to vote newsletter inside. Newsletter used to keep prisoners informed and to keep outside organizers informed of their candidates. Centralized website for organizers to sign up as a representative of right to vote. This website will have prisoner selected candidates endorsements and correspondence. Action. Ensure that all citizens in pretrial detention who have the right to vote already have access to absentee ballots. Contacting campaign candidates with pledge questions here is where you can input your notes from candidates you connected. There's a link there. Um, and I'm sure Max has sh shared this on New Abolitionist Radio, but it's also in btrcommunity.com. Uh, holding right to vote educational assemblies and for recruitment of volunteers. Uh, vote for Me is a free Alabama movement initiative. Shout out to our brothers, uh, part of the free Alabama movement and, and the sisters that's part of that, that's helping them. All persons in prison and disenfranchised will have a family or friend commit to voting for a candidate selected by the confined person. Bars wow. to Ballots is an initiative by Josh, Joshua B. Ho. He created the candidate's pledge form that the right to vote volunteers can and should use. All right. So that's it. That's it, Max. Well, yeah, that's very powerful, man. And, you know, across the nation, states now are, are starting to give back votes, to uh, the right to vote to felons uh, across America. Yeah, I think we that was Louisiana, the big story I saw over the week. I'm not sure if it was Louisiana or somebody else some other store but I mean it still fell short okay 
but it did give the right, you know, some of these people that's already on the outside. It didn't give anybody the right to vote on the inside, but it restored the voting rights of some people labeled as felony slaves and what have you, second class citizens and what have you, and also made it easier for them to get their right to vote back. But it still fell short, but it was a move in the right direction. Just got to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Yeah, that's what you got to do. Just keep pushing. And sometimes it goes longer than one lifetime. <laughs> so, all right, Scotty, you want me to get into the final uh, segments now? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll start with the, the writers of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And this story uh, comes from WGNTV, and it's titled Two More Men Exonerated Over Police Misconduct after serving decades in prison, April 30th, 2018. Chicago, convictions for two more men were vacated Monday after they successfully argued that they were framed by Chicago police in the early 1990s, while a third man has filed a civil lawsuit against the city for his own wrongful convictions. Anthony Jakes and Robert Buteau received a round of applause as they walked out of the courthouse Monday after Cook County judges vacated their convictions. They spent 45 years in prison combined, serving their full sentences before being paroled. Their cases are just the latest example of a slew of wrongful convictions costing taxpayers millions of dollars in settlements, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. Anthony Jakes was just 15 when he was convicted in 1991 murder that happened in a back-of-the-yard sandwich shop. Jake claims he was beaten into a, into signing a false confession by the cops in that case. Detective Michael Kill, what a hell of a name, Michael Kill and Kenneth Bordreau, who were both trained by disgraced police commander John Burge. He served 22 years in prison before being paroled in 2013. A judge vacated his conviction and declared him innocent on Monday. He said in order to move forward and make up for lost time, he might take a trip to Disney World. I wish my grandmother and my mother were here to celebrate this with me because they was my biggest, biggest supporters, Jake said. Robert Boutou was also a teenager when he was convicted of a shooting death near Roosevelt High School in 1993. His attorneys successfully argued Detective Ronaldo Guevara used false evidence in the case. Everybody is just like Say you did it. I'm like, no, I didn't do it, Otu said. Otu was paroled in 2016 after spending 23 years in prison. A judge vacated his conviction Monday, but he was not formally declared innocent, as charges against him are still pending. Even if they were to try his case again, they likely won't. He can't spend any more time in prison because he served his full sentence. He will return to court on May 29th. He says he can't wait for the day he's officially declared innocent because it's been very difficult to get a job. As he looks towards his future, he says he also has plans to get married in three weeks. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say welcome to freedom, Anthony Jakes and Robert Botu. I know you're going through a lot, but at least you ain't in that cage. Yeah, I, I, I just hate it, man, when, you know, the people that was very important in their lives don't you know, they die before these men are set free or these women are set free. That's just so tragic. But yeah, wait, welcome to freedom brothers. Um, Max, I got, 
um, our abolitionists and profile. You want me to go ahead and go into it? Yes, yes sir. Uh, please do that. Thank all right. All right. So our abolitionists in profile tonight is Maria W. Miller Stewart. Um, 1803 to 1879. Maria W. Stewart, best known as one of the earliest female public speakers, was born Maria Miller in Hartford, Connecticut in 1803. Her parents' first names and occupations are not known. Stewart was orphaned by age five and became an indentured servant, serving a clergyman until she was 15. She also attended Connecticut Sabbath schools and taught herself to read and write. In 1826, Miller married James W. Stewart. Her husband, a shipping agent, had served in the war 1812 and had spent some time in England as a prisoner of war. With her marriage, she became part of Boston's small, free black middle class and soon became involved in some of its institutions, including the Massachusetts General Colored Association, which worked for immediate abolition of slavery. When James W. Stewart died in 1829, the white executors of her husband's will took her inheritance through legal actions, leaving her penilessly. That man, that just reminds me what you were saying earlier, Max, about, oh, just make it legal. It's okay. Just make it legal. Soon after Boston abolitionist William Lord Garrison established his newspaper, The Liberator, in January 1831, he specifically called for black women to write in his pages. Stewart was the first woman to respond, and by the summer of 1831, he published her first essay, Religion and the Pure Principles of Morality, as a pamphlet. Building on that notoriety, Stewart launched her public speaking career at a time when women were banned from speaking in public public, especially to audiences that included men. In her first address in April 1832, I'm sorry, April 1832, Stewart spoke before a women's only audience at the African American Female Intelligence Society, an institution founded by the free black community of Boston. Speaking to that audience, she used the Bible to defend her right to speak and lectured on religion, justice, and equality. On September uh, excuse me, September 21st, 1832, Stewart delivered a second lecture, this time to an audience that also included men. She spoke at Franklin Hall, the site of the New England Anti-Slavery Society meetings. She called for civil rights for Northern blacks and questioned immigration to Africa, which was then promoted by the American Colonization Society. Yeah, because they wanted to get y'all up out of here. Uh, Garrison published both spe speeches in the pages of the Liberator. He published the text of her speeches there, putting them into the ladies' department. He also published a second pamphlet of her writings as Meditations from the Pen of Miss Maria W. Stewart. On February 27, 1833, Stewart delivered her third public lecture, African Rights and Liberty at the African Masonic Hall. Her fourth and final Boston lecture before moving to New York was a farewell address on September the 21st, 1833, when she addressed the negative reaction that her public speaking had provoked, expressing both her dismay at having little effect and her sense of divine call to speak publicly. In 1835, Garrison published a pamphlet with her four speeches plus some essays and poems, titling it Productions of Mrs. Maria W. Stewart. All the pamphlets created a much wider audience of Stewart's work and inspired other white and black abolitionist women to become or orators. 
After moving to New York City, Stewart remained an activist, attending, for example, the 1837 Women's Anti-Slavery Convention, but she never again spoke in public. She supported herself by teaching in public schools in Manhattan and Brooklyn, and eventually became an assistant principal of the Williamsburg School in Brooklyn. Apparently, after losing her teacher position in New York, Stewart moved to Baltimore in 1852 or 1853. There, she taught privately. In 1861, she moved to Washington, D.C., where she taught school again during the Civil War. Around 1870, Stewart was appointed to head housekeeping at the Freedmen's Hospital and Asylum in Washington, D.C. Following Sojourner Truth in the post, she managed the cleaning staff. In 1878, when she was 75, Stewart began receiving an $8 a month widow's pension based on her husband's service in the U.S. Navy in the War of 1812. She used the pension, including some retroactive payments, to republish meditations from the pen of Miss Maria W. Stewart, adding material about her life during the Civil War. The book was published in December of 1879, just before her death on December 17th in the Freedman's Hospital. And New Abolitionist Radio salutes Miss Maria W. Miller Stewart, 1803-1879. Max. Salute. Salute, brother. Man, it's amazing what you can do just by talking sometimes. <laughs> and I was to say talk ain't cheap. I haven't counted the bodies that have dropped because of they, what they were doing. Talk. All right, Scotty, uh, we only got a few minutes left, so any final comments for the evening? Yes, I just want to thank everyone for their support over the years for making New Abolitionist Radio possible. Again, you know, we are, this is just the second episode in our seventh season, and, you know, we're becoming an institution, and we couldn't do that without the support of you the listener, whether you are providing financial donations to the Black Talk Media Project or you're sharing the information, sharing the podcast, inviting people, you know, to listen in to the radio show. Look, we're doing very important work. We're sowing seeds. We may not be the one to see those seeds blossom, but we're sowing those seeds. Okay. And, and before, before, let me say just seven years ago, there was no abolitionist movement to speak of since going back before 1865. So to everyone, our past hosts, our volunteers, our listeners, our guests, and all the people who have joined us in this, in this movement, just, just keep the faith and keep the fight. We will prevail. Amen, Scotty. I uh, second those emotions. I'm going to keep it brief because I know you got to get ready for the next program. So for years, I have said the same thing at the end of every program. And I don't think I've ever told people why I say that. It comes from Ashada Shakur when she said that the fundamental goal of revolution must be peace. If you're not doing it for peace, then what are you doing it for? And that's what I'm doing it for. And that's why I tell you every week for years now that abolition is the reason for revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Rise up!